0: looking at uh, Mark 13 as we continue uh, in our 54th Sunday in Mark's Gospel and our fourth Sunday in Mark 13. If you want to grab your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 13 where we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 31, Mark 13 verses 28 to 31. One. Well, you may or may not know this, but today is uh, what's known as Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday is the Sunday every year closest to October 31st, which is the day we memorialize an historic event. It's an event that served as something of a of a spark that eventually set the blaze that we call now the Protestant Reformation. Uh, 505 years ago tomorrow. Uh, a German monk in the Roman Catholic Church named Martin Luther uh, posted a, a paper with 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He posted this paper uh, for the purpose of debate and conversation there in Wittenberg among his contemporaries. And, and, and sometimes uh, accounts of Luther's posting of the 95 theses can be somewhat dramatized and stretched. Uh, oftentimes Luther will be depicted as this increasingly disgruntled and disturbed monk who eventually, in a fit of prophetic rage, crafts 95 theses frantically and then marches right up to the church door in Wittenberg and nails this paper to the door as a sign of prophetic rebellion against the powers that be in the Roman Catholic Church. And the story might be a little less dramatic than that. He might not have actually nailed the, the paper. He might have used a tack or used some sort of adhesive, and in all reality, this wasn't actually all that of an uncommon thing there in Wittenberg. The church door was actually a place wherein people would often post papers for the purpose of debates or conversation, and, and the church door kind of served as something of a, of a public bulletin board for the community there. And yet, although Luther's actions didn't seem to be Initially driven by any sort of revolutionary agenda, the Lord certainly used it to launch a movement that has utterly changed the church and really the entirety of the world. And today, we're, we're glad recipients of the inheritance of the Reformation. Today, we celebrate much of what was recovered and rediscovered through that historic movement. Precious Christian beliefs like that we are declared righteous and made right with God through faith alone and not by works of the law. That we don't have to and really can't earn or deserve God's kindness and forgiveness, but that it comes to us and abounds to us freely in Christ and in Christ alone. That our, or, things like our ordinary vocations possess great dignity and worth and value, that all believers are priests to one another in the household of God and much, much more. But but one of the most significant recoveries in the Protestant Reformation, really the one that led to all of the other important recoveries and rediscoveries, is that in it we were pointed back to the Bible as our only final authority. We were pointed back to the Bible as the life and the food of God's people. The men who led the, the Protestant Reformation Men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Cranmer, they were, they were flawed men. If you read just a little bit of history, you can find out that they were deeply flawed men, but they were men who sought to draw our attention to God's perfect and preeminent word. Luther once wrote, and my counsel is that we draw water from the true source and fountain that is that we diligently search the scriptures. He who wholly possesses the text of the Bible is a consummate divine. Friends, we we pastors of this church are of a mind to take Luther's counsel and that's one of the reasons that we devote ourselves every week, every Lord's Day to the exposition of God's holy word and that's what we're going to do now and continue to do now. If you want to grab your copy of scripture, again, we're looking at Mark 13, 28 through 31. And if you're already there, why don't you stand with me for the reading of the Holy Scriptures as we listen and hear the words of our Lord recorded for us by the evangelist Mark as he wrote them, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you empower and anoint the reading and, and proclamation of your word now with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We need you, and so would you help us now. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, over the last few Sundays, we've been making our way through Mark 13, and, and we've noted that Mark 13 and its its parallels are something of a tempestuous teaching in the Gospels. Their interpretation is often debated and, and disagreed about. Of course, uh, we believe here in, in, in what's called the doctrine of the clarity of the Scriptures. We believe that the Scriptures are are sufficiently clear in the main, that they're abundantly clear even regarding all that, that we need for salvation and godliness, and yet that doesn't mean that Scripture is equally clear all of the time and in all of its places, and we certainly see that here in Mark 13 as we've kind of struggled through the meaning of this text and wrestled with it some. I do hope that um, our time in this passage has been illuminating and, and helpful. If you recall with me where we've been thus far, we started with looking at just two verses, Mark 13, 1 and 2. And there we saw that after Jesus was teaching the temple throughout Tuesday of Holy Week, Tuesday the Tuesday before his Good Friday death and his Sunday resurrection, he and his disciples made their exit from the temple. And as they did so, one of Christ's disciples commented on the magnificence of the temple as a building and the magnitude of its stones, and it really was an amazing building. And, and in response, though, Jesus, is, his response was even more amazing. He said that this temple would one day be destroyed. He said that there would not be one stone left there upon another. And we saw that this prophecy has been fulfilled in the year 70 AD when the Roman Emperor Titus and his army laid siege upon Jerusalem and destroyed the city and its temple in 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus foretold. Now, naturally, the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, are are taken aback by this prophecy. And so after they exit the temple, they go over to the Mount of Olives, which is just across the temple as it stood, and they they ask Jesus in verses 3 and 4, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And so Jesus set out in teaching in verses 5 to 23 of Mark 13, telling them something of, of what life would be like for his people and what it would be like in Judah for the next 40 years or so. And he gave them a number of non-signs in verses 5 to 13, things like wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and various things. These are not signs, events and occurrences which the disciples might view as signs, but are not signs of the soon destruction of the temple. And then in verses 14 to 23, Jesus gives the sign which is called the abomination of desolation. That's the sign that would indicate to the disciples that the temples in Jerusalem's destruction was drawing near. And he told them that when they see it, they should flee the city because a great tribulation would be coming upon Jerusalem. And again, this prophecy was fulfilled when Titus laid siege upon Jerusalem in 70 AD in April of that year and eventually destroyed it in September of that same year. And then last week, as we looked at verses 24 to 27, we saw Jesus kind of change subjects on us in some regard. The most prominent warning that, that Jesus gave his disciples concerning that time between his passion and the temple's destruction is that many false Christs would appear and, and, and claim to be him. We saw this in verses 5 to 6 and in verses 21 to 23. And for that reason, in verses 24 to 27, Jesus told his disciples what his actual second coming would be like so that they wouldn't mistake the appearance of false Christs with his appearance at the end of the age. but Now this morning, we're entering into what I think of as the, the beginning of Jesus' conclusion of this all of it discourse. In our, in our passages this morning and next week, we'll see Jesus kind of wrapping things up. Uh, if you were to ever take a, a, a preaching course at a seminary or something, which I wouldn't recommend, Uh, you'll likely hear this often repeated proverb for for preachers, is when you preach in your introduction, tell people what you're going to tell them. And then in the body of your sermon, tell them what you're going to tell them. And then in your conclusion, tell them what you've told them. Well, that's kind of what we we do up here, and that's kind of what Jesus is, is doing here in our passage. He's going to conclude his all of it discourse by telling his disciples what he already told them. In our passage this morning, he returns to the subject of the temple's coming destruction to to tell us what he told us about that. In our passage next week, he returns to the subject of his second coming to tell us what he told us about that. But here in verses 28 to 31, he's speaking of the temples and of Jerusalem's destruction. And he's reminding his disciples of what he already told them concerning that event. He begins with something of a simile or a parable, an illustration to the disciples so on the Mount of Olives, where he's teaching there, obviously there would have been olive trees, uh, but there's, it's also a place, apparently from what I've read, it, it, it seems to be a place where there are many fig trees. And with them being there during Passover week, it would have been spring, uh, it, it would have been April of that year, and fig trees would have been putting out their leaves. And, and as Jesus sees this, he goes, oh, this is a perfect illustration. So he says in verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson, uh, the word translated as lesson here is the same word we translate as parable elsewhere in the gospel it's a parable it's a simile of sorts that he wants his disciples to learn from so he says as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near right as soon as as the fig trees branch or any tree as soon as it becomes tender and starts to fill with sap and leaves begin to populate the tree again after winter when that happens you know summer is coming right well, he says in the same way, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Um, and, and by the way, this, that verse could also just as well be translated as you know that it is near at the very gates. You might even have a translation here this morning that says it instead of he. I, I personally think that's better because the, the Greek doesn't actually say he or it. English translators supply it to try to make better Sense of it in English, and they'll often choose one or the other based on how they interpret the passage. Uh, and, and, and at this point, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that a lot of people interpret this passage differently than I do this morning. Okay, so many people believe that this passage is about the second coming of Christ, that when he says, When you see these things taking place, you know that it is near. Many people believe that Jesus is speaking about his return at the end of the age. Now, I don't think that's right. I think it makes much more sense to read this as speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And there are four indications here in our text for interpreting it that way. So first, look at his his use of the phrase, these things. Remember the initial question from the disciples about the temple's destruction in verse 4. They say, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, these things things what is it in reference to there the temple's destruction and the surrounding events in 70 AD well Jesus uses the same phrase here because he's talking about the same subject when you see these things taking place you know that he is near at the very gates truly I say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place these things it's an important phrase to pay attention to in this chapter because it's referring back to the temple's destruction and the surrounding events. Uh, furthermore, he's, he's, he's going to contrast these things with that day in just the next passage in verse 32. In verse 32, if you, if you glance down there, down the page, Jesus begins talking about his second coming again, and there's a contrast he makes between these things and that day. In verses 28 to 31, he's telling them to watch out for the sign concerning these things, but of his second coming, in verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Do you see the contrast? They're to be looking out for the timing of these things, the temples in Jerusalem's destruction, but when it comes to that day, the day of Christ's second coming, the timing can't be known. That's the contrast. They could know when Jerusalem's destruction was drawing near because of the clear sign Jesus gave them, but we can't know when he's going to return. That's the contrast. Additionally, look at the similarity of language in our text this morning in verse 14 about the abomination of desolation. In our passage this morning, he says, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. This seems to be hearkening back to what he told them they would see prior to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D. In verse 14, he gave the sign that would indicate Jerusalem's destruction was drawing near. He said, when you see, same phrase, the abomination of desolation, that was the sign that Jerusalem's destruction was coming soon. That's what they were to be looking out for as the indication that they should flee Jerusalem and get out of the city, and we talked about what that might have been a couple, uh, a couple Sundays ago, but the similarity of language there implies that we're talking not about the second coming, but about Jerusalem's destruction and all of those surrounding events. And then lastly, this seems to be Jerusalem's destruction because of the plain meaning of verse 30. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, there's a lot of fanciful interpretations of that verse that try to make it fit with a futurist interpretation, but... We can read it in its most natural sense if it's talking about Jerusalem's destruction. And so when he says, this generation won't pass away, it it seems obvious that he's talking about the people he's speaking to there. Peter, James, John, Andrew. He's he's talking about them and their contemporaries. A generation, and that word is often used in the Bible, it often means a group of people or a span of about 40 years. Well, Jesus said these words in 30, 33 AD, and what he foretold came to pass in 70 AD, about 40 years later, reading this verse in its most natural way would indicate that this passage is not about Christ's return, but about Jerusalem's destruction. Now, some people have the audacity to look at Christ's words here and read them as pertaining to the second coming, and believed that he was just wrong, that he thought he would come back within a generation, but that he was mistaken. Even some people who call themselves Christians believe that sometimes. But that just completely undermines what he says, doesn't it? In, 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 in just the conclusion of our paragraph here, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's a personal guarantee here from Jesus that his words are sure and trustworthy, there is a surety and a trustworthiness to his words here, and he, in, he guarantees it. And of course, his statement brings this question to mind as we're just unpacking our passage here. What does he mean by my words here? Is he talking about the words of, of our text this morning? Is he talking about all of Mark 13? Is he talking about all of his teaching during all of his earthly ministry? Um, I would just answer Yes. To all three of those, I, I agree with biblical scholar Mark Stein. He says, certainly Mark and his readers would assume that this would, in some sense, refer to all of his teaching, since it would be impossible for them to think that where his teachings in Mark 13 would endure forever, other teachings of Jesus would pass away. There's just no way that they would read it that way. Certainly wouldn't be the case. There is a personal guarantee of the surety and trustworthiness of all of Christ's words in, our, in, in, in Scripture, those in our passage, those in this chapter, and all of the words he ever spoke and all of them recorded for us in Holy Writ. He's saying here, you can be sure, you can be certain that my words are true. My words, he says, are more sure than the ground sitting under your feet right now. My words are more stable than the sun and the moon and the stars in their places. My words, he's saying, are more certain than the sun rising in the east tomorrow morning. And this prophecy and its fulfillment, not unrelated to that reality, are proof here, are a proof here that Jesus wasn't blowing smoke. This passage provides for us a great source of assurance that Jesus truly is who he said he is. It's a great source of assurance for us that his teaching is true, that he has the words of eternal life that we're not mistaken in betting our lives on him and what he said. You can take it all to the bank and it'll check out, he says. Now, what do we do with all this? What do we do? You might be wondering, okay, now I know that this passage is about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What do we do with this teaching? With words that seem to be directly addressed to a first century audience about first century events that we in the 21st century aren't going to go through at all, What does this have to say to 21st century disciples of Jesus Christ? And that's a good question. We're not interested in information for information's sake here. We want to know the Bible in order to know Christ and to grow in trust in him and in likeness to him. And so what do we do with this? Well, in, in our passage, as it pertains to Christ, we see here a clear claim to absolute authority. A clear claim to his absolute authority. We see one thing we see about Jesus here is a clear claim to his absolute authority. In saying these words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In saying this, Jesus is clearly claiming that his words are the very words of God. He's claiming absolute divine authority in what he speaks. These words here echo the words of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. As a hymn of praise to to God, the psalmist says there, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Well, who's he talking about there? He's talking about God, about Yahweh. All things pass away and change, but you, O oh great and mighty Jehovah, you will never change. You will never pass away. You are the eternal, omni-relevant, all-powerful, all-true, forever-living God. And then, I want to know something interesting. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, quotes these very words from Psalm 102, and he says, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about, about Jesus. That's who those words are attributed to. Jesus, the Son of the living God, is the eternal one, the unchanging one, the omni-relevant, all-powerful, all-wise, all-true one. He will remain and remain eternally. That's why he can say here, you know, all this will pass away, but my words won't ever pass away. That's why he can say an echo the words of Isaiah 48, to speak of his own words, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus can say, my words will stand forever because my words are the words of God. Jesus is claiming nothing less than absolute divine authority here. And this is, this is an important to point out because we, we live in a time Of no little confusion concerning the identity and teachings of Jesus, even among those claiming to be Christians. Just a few months ago, Ligonier and and Lifeway released their their State of Theology report, their findings. It's a report released every two years, provides surveys from uh, the results from surveys of, of Americans, both just the general population as well as those professing to be evangelical Christians. And there were, there were a number of disturbing results among people who professed to be evangelical Christians this year. One statement, statement number seven, this question number seven of the survey was this, uh, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, and then the people surveyed were asked to, to say whether that was true or false. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, true or false, of professing evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God, not divine. 43% of those people claiming to be gospel people. That's what the word evangelical means, gospel. Gospel people, Bible people, people who, who claim to hold to the historic Christian faith said, true, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Maybe even some of us this morning who who might even profess to be Christians, or maybe we don't, maybe we agree with that statement. Jesus is not God. He's just a good moral teacher. Friends, you can't say that. You you can't say that. You you can't say that, that Jesus is just a good teacher because he said things like this. If he was just a teacher and not the God of the universe, he couldn't possibly be a good teacher because he claimed to be the God of the universe and any teacher, any mere human teacher who claims to be such, well, there's something, but they're not good and they're not moral. C.S. Lewis communicates this, this very argument in, in Mere Christianity when he wrote this. Listen to what Lewis says. But this way, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's, he's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis tells us, this is his famous argument. Christ's a liar, a lunatic, or He's Lord can't just be a, a good moral teacher and that's it. Lewis leaves one option out. He says you could claim Jesus, uh, I would say you could claim Jesus to be a legend too, just a, a legend of our own making. We'll talk about that in a moment, but, but you can't say that he was just a good moral teacher. It's not what Jesus claimed for himself. It's, it's not what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. Jesus taught and we've believed that he's the eternal son of God, that he's truly God and truly man and that he's come as the God-man to live the perfect life that we should have lived but have it because of our sin and rebellion against God, but that he is the perfect one, died a sinner's death on the cross in our place so that we who are sinners might not bear the penalty for our sin but receive the gift of everlasting life that he alone deserves. He came to take our sin and the penalty it deserved, and instead give us his righteousness and the reward that he deserves. Christianity is not a religion of a moral teacher come to give us some good advice. It's the good news of the redemption of sinners and rebels by the God-man who came for us. And with that, if you do accept that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, that he's divine, You can't pick and choose to believe parts of what he said and taught and not others. Perhaps this is one reason why people can be tempted to reject Jesus' divinity because then if he's truly God, you have to accept all that he said and taught, don't you? If Jesus is truly divine and possesses absolute authority, then his words are enduring, always relevant, always authoritative, regardless of what our time and culture might deem appropriate. You can't pick and choose and customize Christianity when Jesus is God. You can't choose and customize like you can your, your iPhone home screen or your, your Chipotle order. You, you can't take the parts of Christianity that you're comfortable with and leave out the parts that seem costly or hard. You can't take forgiveness and, and the peace and eternal life, but leave out what Jesus said about your sex life or your money or evangelism. St. Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, it's yourself. It's always a good question to to ask ourselves, what is it that we place our faith and trust in? Is it Jesus, the divine one, the God-man, the redeeming one, the one who had absolute authority, or is it yourself? We find in our passage good reason to choose jesus here because he not only makes a clear claim to his absolute authority but we find a confirmation of his complete credibility don't we we find a confirmation of his complete credibility because remember with me this prophecy was fulfilled jesus foretold the temples and jerusalem's destruction he told his people that there would be a sign prior to it taking place he said I've told you all things before him. He even told them that it would all happen within a generation, and he was right. What he said would happen happened in the exact way he said it would happen. The prophecy was fulfilled. John Piper, he exalts in the glory of fulfilled prophecy in his wonderful book, A Peculiar Glory. Listen to what he says. He says, it should be said that the sheer fact of fulfilled prophecy is a revelation of the glory of God in Christ, not just the way it happens, but that it happens. This amazing fact has been used by God to awaken many people to the reality of His work and inspiring the Scriptures. I won't list the hundreds of examples from Scripture since they are so readily available, and He's right. There's one readily available in our passage this morning. Christ prophesied the temple's destruction and the abomination of desolation that all of these things would happen within a generation 40 years before the fact and all of it was fulfilled. This is a confirmation of his credibility. Some of us who, who might be a bit more apt to view Jesus as legend here might argue that, well, you know, this is, this is Mark's account of Jesus' words, Right? We don't know that Jesus actually ever even said this. It could just be a later development, a a later teaching attributed to Jesus after the events of 70 A.D. Perhaps when Mark wrote this, Jerusalem's destruction had already taken place. And Mark recorded this so-called prophecy after the fact in effort to lend credibility to Christ's words. And that won't hold because Mark's gospel is actually written most likely in the mid to late 50s, 10 to 15 years before the events of 70 AD. Some scholars will claim that Mark was written a little later in in the the 60s, in the mid-60s. But but even if that were the case, what we find here is Jesus' words prophesying the temple's destruction 40 years before the fact and Mark's record of Jesus' words prior to those events as well, perhaps even up to 15 years before providing for us now a full view of Christ's prophecy and its fulfillment, which provides for us this morning an important evidence that Jesus is not a liar, that he's not a lunatic, he's not a legend, he's Lord and Master, who though all the world pass away, his words endure and remain and will never pass away. They are sure and true. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just I just ask you, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with Christ's claims and the confirmation of his credibility here? What are you going to do with this claim to absolute authority? What are you going to do with this confirmation of his credibility? If nothing else, don't just file it away in the back of your mind and forget about it. Let this give you reason to explore and research and learn and read about Jesus all the more. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning and and you want to talk more about this, you want to read the Bible, learn about Christianity, you can just tug on the the sleeve of any Christian around you. I'm sure that they would be willing to wreck their whole schedule to talk with you about this. I guarantee it. But don't be idle with, with, with what we see here in this text. Let this move you to learning more about the Bible and about this Jesus who claims absolute authority for himself. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, let this strengthen your assurance in Christ's trustworthiness this morning. Friends, just like Mark's, Mark and, and his original audience would have seen this as a guarantee of the trustworthiness of Christ's words and teachings, so we can as well this morning. If Jesus said about 2,000 years ago that his words would not pass away, and thus far he's been right, then don't we have good reason to believe what he says about everything else? we do when he said in mark 1 15 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel we can trust that though heaven and earth pass away his words will never pass away the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is here god's salvation is here and his gospel is worthy of our belief when he says in mark 2 5 son Your sins are forgiven to the man who came to him with genuine faith. We can know that our sins are forgiven when we come to him with like faith. Because though heaven and earth pass away, his words will never pass away. You are forgiven when you're struggling with feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation because of sin. We can rest assured that Christ is for us and that he came for us. Because as he said in Mark 2:17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And though heaven and earth pass away, his words will never pass away. Truly, he came for sinners like you and like me. And he said in and, and in Mark 3:28, truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven. The children of man, we can rest assured, because though heaven and earth pass away, his words will never pass away. He said in Mark 8:35, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. We can give him our lives and trust that we'll be saved because his words will never pass away. He said in Mark 10, 45 that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. We can know that it's true. We can know that we've been ransomed because his words will never pass away. When he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. When he says, whoever believes in me will not perish but will have eternal life. When he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life. When he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When he says that one day he's going to return in order to make all things new and wipe away every tear from our cheeks, we can rest, we can trust, we can be assured that it's all true because though heaven and earth pass away, his words will endure and never pass away. He is completely credible. He has given us reason to believe him with fulfilled prophecy he's shown us with all of his teaching with all of his life with his death and resurrection that he is lord that he's worthy of our trust and so we can rest that though heaven and earth pass away his words will never pass away and so with luther as he said in the beginning may we draw water from the true source and fountain that is may we diligently search the scriptures In the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is here that we find the words of eternal life, enduring words, trustworthy words, words that will never pass away though everything else around us does. Here we find a surety. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts. Give us strength and grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe it, that though heaven and earth pass away, Christ's words will never pass away. We pray that as we come to the table that this would be a a sign and a seal of this gospel we've just heard, seal it upon our hearts with this as we come forward now to feast and eat and drink in communion with our Lord and Savior who died and who rose again for us, whose words will never pass away. Help us to trust, help us to believe, help us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen.